Our text this Lord's Day is taken from Daniel chapter 10. I invite you to turn there with me in your Bibles. Daniel chapter 10. And we'll be focusing upon verses 10 through 15. Verses 10 through 15. And behold, an hand touched me, which set me upon my knees and upon the palms of my hands. And he said unto me, O Daniel, a man greatly beloved, understand the words that I speak unto thee, and stand upright, for unto thee am I now sent. And when he had spoken this word unto me, I stood trembling. Then said he unto me, Fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that thou didst set thine heart to understand and to chasten thyself before thy God, thy words were heard, and I am come for thy words. But the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me one and twenty days. But lo, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, and I remained there with the kings of Persia. Now I am come to make thee understand what shall befall thy people in the latter days, for yet the vision is for many days. And when he had spoken such words unto me, I set my face toward the ground, and I became dumb. We tend to focus only upon problems and solutions that we can see with our eyes and hear with our ears. You know, that's a very natural approach since we are human beings that live and move about in physical and material bodies. Even as Christians, we we may not think very often about the influence of angelic beings, both godly and ungodly angelic beings, in the affairs of our lives uh, and in matters related to nations, uh, to wars, to laws that are enacted, uh, to the culture around us and to religion. The text before us uh, today brings home to us that there is another world of the unseen that is very, very real and that has a significant role in influencing and shaping what happens in this world every day. As moral agents, we are always responsible for our own desires, our own words, and our own deeds. We cannot blame uh, anyone else, any other being, for our own sin. But there are, nevertheless, there are invisible forces beyond the physical and the material world that are used by the Lord or used by Satan to intervene in the affairs of men. In the affairs of families, in the affairs of churches, in the affairs of nations. The Bible in the 
section that we're considering today gives us insight, some insight into this unseen world. Now this is not intended to be spooky. It's not intended to be creepy. Uh, but it is intended to give to us something that's very, very real uh, and is truthful. Nevertheless, you know, people can always go off on tangents, can always go to extremes in any area that is actually taught in God's word. And certainly we can see all manner of extreme with regard to the unseen world on the part of people today uh, who... Um, can attribute everything, uh, every sin that they commit to some spirit, to, to some demon, rather than taking responsibility for their own sin. So we can always blame uh, someone else or something else for our own sin. But again, uh, that's not to deny that these forces are actually real, that they are actually uh, there and present. You see, there's not only a visible creation of God which can be seen with our natural eyes, but there is also an invisible creation of God that cannot be seen with our natural eyes. In Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 16, we read, who is the image of the invisible God, that is Jesus is, the, in, the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. For by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, notice, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him and for him. So there are according to the Apostle Paul, even invisible, not only visible, but invisible thrones and dominions and principalities and powers. There's a hierarchy uh, in the unseen world by way of God's uh, angels and by way of those who have followed Satan. We want to in the sermon this Lord's Day, and I do plan to uh, continue looking at this subject, uh, God willing, next Lord's Day as well, we want to explore this, this spiritual world of good and evil and uh, to consider especially the words that we find in our text this Lord's Day as it relates to the unseen world and what occurs there. The main points from our text are these. First of all, <clears throat> the help given to Daniel by an angel in verses 10 through 11. And then second, the explanation given to Daniel for the delay to his prayer in Daniel 10, verses 12 through 15. So first of all, the help given to Daniel by an angel in verses 10 through 11 which we have uh, read. By way of review, uh, this is, as we noted last Lord's Day, this is the last recorded vision or revelation in the book of Daniel. It covers the last three chapters, Daniel 
chapter 10, chapter 11, and chapter 12. When Daniel received this vision, we also noted that he was likely in a more isolated location near uh, the river Hedekel or the river Tigris, which is miles from Babylon. Daniel, we also read last Lord's Day, began a partial fast that lasted 21 days. And the reason for that fast is not explicitly given, but we might deduce that since it was now about two years after Cyrus had decreed that the people of God should be set free to return to Jerusalem so as to rebuild the temple. And we know from the book of Ezra that about this time that what is happening here in Daniel, we find out what was happening in Jerusalem in Ezra 4, that the Samaritans were offering resistance and opposition. They had become adversaries to the Jews in the rebuilding of the temple. And they were consulting those in high places in the government, uh, uh, even in, in Babylon, uh, there with Cyrus, uh, no doubt, as well, as to uh, his uh, input in stopping the rebuilding of the temple. And so this is likely the occasion for Daniel's praying and fasting for this period of time. Daniel was given, we also noted in the sermon last Lord's Day, a vision, a glorious vision of the Lord Jesus Christ in verses 5 through 6. Uh, in order to encourage him, in order to uh, help him to understand that this vision of Jesus Christ that was given was uh, a vision of Christ as the exalted priest and as the exalted king, and that uh, regardless of the adversaries and those who opposed uh, the work of the Lord, uh, they could not possibly conquer, they could not possibly overcome the one who was revealed to Daniel in that vision, even the Lord Jesus Christ. Daniel, you recall, then responded to this amazing vision of Christ by falling into uh, an unconscious state of sleep, prostate, with his face to the ground. And that's where we pick up now in verse 10, chapter 10, verse 10 today. So while Daniel is in this unconscious state, after beholding the Lord of glory in this vision, an angel physically touches him. So again, what Daniel beheld was a vision, but this angel is not in the vision. This angel actually touches him. And so the angel comes outside of the vision which Daniel had seen, to touch him, to set him, we read, upon his hands and upon his knees, so that Daniel gradually uh, has time to collect himself and to regain his strength, having fallen unconscious due to the vision that he had just seen. 
I think we, again, as we're talking about the unseen world, uh, the angel did materialize, did take on a, a, a body of flesh that could be touched uh, at that time. But we are going to see, once again, that that's, uh, that's an addition, that's not something essential to uh, an angel's nature and being to have a body. Uh, they are created as spiritual beings. Uh, they can take on bodies uh, when God so ordains it, as in this case, but uh, they do not have to have bodies. In fact, uh, that, as I said, is an addition to what they actually uh, are. They are uh, spirits and they work uh, in that realm, that spiritual realm. God also sends angels uh, uh, to help and assist us, as we will see. In fact, uh, Hebrews 1.14 says, Are they not all, speaking of the angels, are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for them who shall be heirs of salvation? So God sends forth his angels, these holy beings, these mighty beings, uh, continually to assist and to help us and uh, we'll talk more about that in the sermon today and then in the sermon next Lord's Day. <clears throat> this uh, angel that touches Daniel was most likely the angel Gabriel. Uh, Gabriel has already appeared to Daniel on two previous occasions in the book of Daniel, in Daniel 8, verses 15 through 18, and in Daniel 9, verses 20 through 23. So this is the third, if this is Gabriel, and I think there's good, good reason to believe that the same angel that touched Daniel on these previous occasions when Daniel fell into this unconscious state and awakened him and strengthened him, on uh, these two previous occasions, was also the same angel that appears, though he's not specifically named here in Daniel 10, is likely the same angel that appeared to him previously. These angels are very, very involved uh, in our lives. Uh, we, again... Um, I'm sure most of the time, I've never seen an angel. Uh, you, know, you probably haven't either. Uh, but uh, the Bible tells us they're very, very involved in our lives. Nevertheless, uh, I take God at his word that that is the case. And we see the involvement here uh, in the unseen world uh, with regard to Daniel, which is, again, very, very interesting. Uh, many things to I think we are to learn from this account. Here we see that the angel, that God through this angel restores uh, Daniel, but he does so by way of degrees. He doesn't immediately give Daniel, uh, you know, all the strength that he just leaps up and everything is just fine, but you see that he first of all takes Daniel through these degrees of, of gaining renewing his strength. First of all, being unconscious, uh, he raises him so that he's on all fours. He's on his knees and his hands. 
then, uh, after that, uh, he uh, uh, causes Daniel to stand upon his feet. And even uh, standing upon his feet, and at the end of verse 11, he, Daniel says, I stood trembling. And so he was not even, at that point, fully restored to complete health uh, as he had been previously. I think there is something instructive about this uh, for, for us all, and that is that uh, often uh, spiritual restoration and physical restoration come in degrees. Uh, they don't come all at once. Uh, we don't, uh, uh, many times, when, when we've fallen into um, uh, some depression, some discouragement, fallen into some sin, um, uh, we don't necessarily see an immediate uh, recovery by way of, of just, you know, being able to, to uh, jump up and to see the full blessing of the Lord in, strength, in, in his strength. Uh, that does happen. I'm not saying it doesn't happen. God, however, doesn't always take us that route where we're immediately, or in being healed physically. Uh, we, don't, uh, we don't always see an immediate full recovery. Sometimes again, when God does heal, he does so in stages. He does so in degrees, very often. And sometimes that's over a longer period of time. Why does the Lord do that? I, I would submit to you that he does so, uh, at least in part, uh, so that we praise him for every little morsel of encouragement that God gives to us by way of improvement. We may not be where we want to be, but praise God that he's brought us from that place where we were to where we are now. There's always more, I suppose, that we can wish for, that we can desire, that God would do in our lives to strengthen us spiritually, to strengthen us uh, physically. But uh, are we thankful, uh, even when he places us upon our hands and our knees, are we thankful that when we're made to be able to stand, we do so uh, trembling, we do so faltering, uh, we do so not with full strength, but are we thankful? And do we, during that process, are we looking in hope to what the Lord uh, yet will do? That the Lord will yet give us uh, Strength that the Lord will yet encourage us. I'm reminded of how Jesus healed a particular blind man in Mark chapter 8, verses 23 through 25, how he healed this blind man in stages. Uh, he took the man apart from the crowd, and he, the scripture says, he spat upon his eyes, and uh, then uh, he said, open your eyes, what do you see? And the man said, I see men like trees walking. In other words, it wasn't very clear. It wasn't a full recovery, it wasn't a full and complete healing. He didn't see things distinctly. And the Lord 
then placed his hand upon his eyes once again, and he was healed fully, and he could see clearly. Now, why did the Lord do that in stages? Must have been a reason. And I submit to you, uh, again, to show to us that God does not always bring instantaneous and immediate healing, whether spiritually in our growth or in our physical bodies. But we need to trust him. Uh, the man in that case, who the blind man in that case, didn't walk away from the Lord and say, Lord, if you can't heal me you know, completely, I'm going to leave. I'm going to go somewhere else. He still trusted God. He still trusted in the Lord Jesus at that point. And the Lord did, uh, very soon after, did heal him completely. And then the angel, after, after placing him upon Daniel upon his knees, he gives him the reason for his appearance. In verse, verse 11, he began by assuring Daniel of the fact that Daniel was beloved of God. In verse 11, O Daniel, a man greatly beloved. Daniel was very weak, he was very frail. At this point, he's physically struggling, spiritually struggling with weakness, having seen this, this vision. And what does the Lord do first? He assures him of his love for him. If there's anything that will chase away our fears that we have, because in verse 12, Daniel was afraid Said the angel assures him in verse 12, fear not, fear not. But if there's anything that will chase fears away, it's to know that the Lord loves us, that he cares for us, that we are his beloved, that he has accepted us, as we are taught in Ephesians 1.6, we are accepted in the sight of God, before God, in the beloved, in Jesus Christ. We're not beloved apart from Jesus Christ. We are beloved in Jesus Christ. That's why we uh, are uh, looked upon with such grace and with such mercy. It's because we have been chosen in Christ Jesus before the foundations of the earth. We are accepted in him who is beloved. And we are taught in his word that, that we need not fear. Fear thou not, Isaiah 41.10. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. And so the Lord promises, we have truly, we have truly nothing to fear from man. We have truly nothing to fear from circumstances. 
that arise. Even that which we have no control over ourselves. That's really so often what drives us to fear is we don't believe we have any control over that. But fear is chased away when we know that God loves us and the God who loves us has everything in control, even if we do not have everything in control, and even if we don't have hardly anything really in control. You see, there's a holy fear in which we stand in awe and wonder of God's glory and might. That holy fear is, is taking his promises and taking his warnings seriously. That's a holy fear. That's a godly fear. The beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. The beginning of knowledge is the fear of the Lord. That's a holy fear. But there's also a sinful fear in which we rest not in God's promises, but rather we listen. We listen to the enemy and his words as to why we should be afraid. We listen to his words that God will not be merciful to us, that God will not be with us when we pass through the fire, when we pass through the flood, that God will not provide for us all that we need. And rather than believing God and his promises, we resort to believing the enemy, and that's where fear then arises within our hearts. But here we see again how the Lord comes to his, his beloved servant, Daniel, and says, fear not, don't be afraid. I'm with thee, the Lord is saying through the angel, Gabriel, I'm with thee, Daniel. And then the angel uh, informed Daniel that he was sent, in verse 11, that he was sent to give Daniel understanding of what was about to be revealed uh, to Daniel. And even with the assurance of God's love and that the Lord was revealing his truth to him, Daniel still stood there trembling, was still shaking in his own weakness. You see, even the saints of God that are most honored in Scripture, as we said concerning David in the Old Testament scripture reading the heroes of faith like Daniel as well they were yet weak we don't tend to look at them as being weak we tend to look at them as being almost superhuman the, the heroes of faith but they were weak like us um, they were of like passion uh, as we are and uh, we see, again, uh, that they were feeble men and women, just as we are. We see that they were not great, but rather they believed in a great God. And that, again, is what faith is all about. It's recognizing our weakness, 
our feebleness, our faltering, our stumbling, but recognizing his greatness, his goodness, his mercy, his power in the midst of our weakness. That's how we make perfect God's power in the midst of our weakness is by turning to him who is great. How patient is the Lord with us. With us who are trembling, faltering servants. And that's the reason God reveals, dear ones, the weaknesses, the sins of the heroes of faith to remind us that it's not they that were great, but that it was and is always God that is great. Our second main point is the explanation given to Daniel for the delay to his prayer. In verses 12 through 15, Gabriel now explained uh, to Daniel that when Daniel began to pray and to fast 21 days earlier, that Daniel's prayer was heard and God acted at that very moment that the prayer was heard in heaven in sending Gabriel to Daniel to reveal to Daniel God's plan for the future of God's people. But we ask if God heard and acted immediately in heaven, why the delay in getting the answer to Daniel through Gabriel? What hindered this angel from coming and appearing immediately at the time that God sent Gabriel forth? What hindered him? Well, we're, we're given some insight here behind the scenes, I think, for many things that happen in the world every day. There is an unseen war. There is an unseen battle that is going on that we, again, never see with our natural eyes. And if we don't even give any thought to it, we're dismissing something, I believe, very important that's taught to us in God's word about who our true enemy is, who we are truly warring and fighting against. It's not against flesh and blood, but it's against these spiritual forces in high places. Not that people can't become God's enemies, but they're nothing of flesh and blood in comparison to those that are of a spiritual nature. So here we see this battle. Who was this spiritual battle between? Well, the battle was between uh, Gabriel, on the one hand, and the prince of the kingdom of Persia, according to verse 13, on the other hand. 
Let's understand who these opposing forces were. We know that Gabriel was an angel of God. In Luke chapter 1, verse 19, it says that Gabriel, and it specifically uses his name, and uh, says that he was an angel that appeared to Zacharias, uh, the father of John the Baptist. And then it mentions in verse 26 that the same angel by the name of Gabriel appeared to Mary to make the announcement of the conception, that uh, conception, that holy conception of the Lord Jesus in the womb of Mary. So let's let's just again we've we've this may be review because we have talked about this in past sermons, but just again to review this. Angels are created beings. They're not eternal. They they assume bodies, as we already said, uh, but they are complete and whole as spirits. They were created by God in order to serve him and to praise him. Those angels that fell away in the apostasy of Satan, uh, they do the bidding of, of the, the prince of the devils, Satan. And hell, Jesus says in Matthew 25, 41, hell was originally prepared for the devil and his angels. But all of those who choose to follow Satan, rather than following Jesus Christ, likewise find the same place of judgment for all eternity with the devil and his angels. Angels are not mere observers or spectators of God's creation, but are vigilant and watchful every day, throughout the day, to carry out God's plans and purposes throughout the world. His mighty works are, are performed. God doesn't need angels to perform his works. He could do so simply as he did in the very beginning, speak things into, merely speak it into being. Speak it, all of his purposes, without any intervention, without any means. He's the first cause. He can cause all things without any second causes if he chose to do so. But he has chosen in his most wise counsel to use second causes, to use means, to use angels in this particular instance. And in particular, the holy angels minister to God's people. As we already noted in Hebrews 1.14, are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for them who shall be heirs of salvation. We see how that is the case in many examples in, in Scripture, but in 2 Kings 6, a great host of angels protected Elisha the prophet from the Syrian troops that had surrounded the village of Dothan. And they were, they were encompassing all about uh, the Syrian troops and brought blindness upon the Syrian troops at that time to protect Elisha, uh, whom the Syrian troops, troops had come to take in, 
and to lead captive. We see, uh, again, Daniel says in Daniel 6 that an angel was sent by God to close the mouth of the lions. We see, likewise, in Acts 12, 7, that it was an angel that was sent to, to lead Peter out of prison uh, and to open the, the gates, the doors, the prison doors at each point to bring upon the, the uh, gatekeepers, the prison guards, to bring upon them a deep sleep so that they were not awakened. That was all the work of angels. God also uses uh, angels to judge his enemies. In 2 Kings 19, uh, an angel slew 185,000 Assyrian troops that were camped outside of Jerusalem in one night. 185,000. In Acts 12, an angel destroyed King Herod with worms because... He robbed God of the glory and took glory to himself. And so we, we think to ourselves, we, I think we should, I think it's very important we, that we see that's not just something that happened in the Bible. How many times have God's angels been sent by God to preserve and to protect us and our children our grandchildren, our friends, our loved ones, from so many dangers. How many times have those angels been sent? I dare say countless times. Paul even states that God's angels come disguised at times as strangers ministering to God's people in Hebrews 13 too disguised and that's why he says be careful some have entertained angels unaware but we need to understand concerning angels that uh, angels are not all-knowing they're not omniscient uh, in fact it says in 1st Peter 1 12 that they desire to look into the things related to salvation it's amazing to angels and it ought to be amazing to us but it's amazing to angels those elect and godly angels that have never fallen and have always walked perfectly in submission and holiness to God, not talking about the fallen angels, but the elect angels. It's amazing to them that God has shown to us who are sinners such mercy and grace and love. And they long, they desire to look into these things because they don't completely understand you know, God, though they know much, and though they know more than we know, yet they do not know all. They want to grow and understand these things. Uh, they, not only are they not all-knowing, they're not uh, omnipresent. They, they are not in, each angel is not in all locations throughout the universe at the same time. Only God is infinite as to his being. They, they are sent. So they are sent from one location. They are sent to another location. Uh, they are not omnipresent. They are not almighty. Uh, they are rather servants. They serve the almighty. But they are not almighty themselves. 
Likewise, they, they are very quick. They're not lazy. They don't procrastinate to do the will of God. Matthew 6.10, one of the petitions in the Lord's Prayer, Thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. In other words, the pattern for obedience upon, uh, here upon the earth is the obedience of the angels in heaven who are quick to do the will of God, not waiting around for the right moment to do God's will, not waiting when it feels comfortable, when it feels right, but doing the will of God because God has authorized and commanded it to be done, honoring him in that way. There's an amazing number of angels that God created and that are godly, elect angels that serve him. In Daniel 7.10, earlier it says in this vision that was given to Daniel, a fiery stream issued and came forth from before him, before God upon his throne. Thousand thousands ministered unto him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him, before the throne, to do, waiting to do the will of God. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 22 says, But ye are come unto Mount Zion, and unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to an innumerable company of angels. An innumerable company of angels. God uh, is not short-handed. Uh, by way of getting uh, the job done, whatever it may be, whatever he's purposed. Uh, he is in no way shorthanded. He has more than adequate uh, angels. Not that he, again, needs them, uh, but he uses them. And uh, they, there is an, uh, an innumerable amount of them to do his bidding as great and mighty as angels are, well, we need to understand they're not to be worshipped. Uh, they are not to be prayed to. Only God is to be worshipped. Only God is to be prayed to. The Apostle John learned that twice in Revelation 19.10 and Revelation 22.8-9 where he bowed down to angels and on both of those occasions and he was told on both occasions to stand up. Um, uh, they were not to be worshipped. They were creatures. They were angels. They were creatures like John himself. And yet, though they are not to be worshipped, angels join us for worship. There are angels in this room, even now, joining us for worship. That's not uh, something that I simply am throwing out there to you, but... 1 Corinthians chapter 11 says that they behold God's people worshiping. They behold uh, the order or the disorder that is going on within the place where God's people gather for worship. They are present. They rejoice and, and, and exult uh, in the Lord when they see our hearts turned and humility and love and faith and hope to the Lord Jesus Christ and honor him and how we worship him. So that's who Gabriel was. Who was the prince of Persia? 
that withstood Gabriel. Well, there are some divines, some uh, scholars from the past and in the present that have suggested that the prince of Persia was indeed an earthly Persian prince, uh, namely Cambyses, uh, who was the son of Cyrus. However, it's one thing to, to assert that, it's another thing to provide evidence for that to be the case. There is no biblical or historical testimony that Cambyses offered resistance to the Jews while he was yet a prince before he became king. I think it's very unlikely that Cambyses, the son of Cyrus the king, would violate, would go against the decree of Cyrus who had sent the Jews forth with provision to rebuild the temple. It's very unlikely that Cambyses would have, as a prince, not yet exalted to be king, would be contradicting, would be going against uh, his father. We have no evidence that he did so. And why would Gabriel, a mighty angel of God, have such a difficult time overcoming a mere human king for 21 days when an angel of God, as we noted, slew 185,000 Assyrians in one night? Why would that be such an obstacle? Well, other divines, uh, scholars from godly and learned men of God from the past and present have uh, proposed that the prince of Persia was an evil angel, an evil spirit sent by Satan to influence King Cyrus against the Jews and to side with the Samaritans that were adversaries to the Jews in Ezra chapter 4. What evidence is there that the prince of Persia is a spirit being, an evil spirit being? What evidence is there for that position? Well, in the same verse, verse 13, it says, but the prince of the kingdom of Persia <clears throat> withstood me one in twenty days, but lo, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me. Here, Michael, who is identified as in Jude chapter 1, verse 9, is identified as an archangel, is called a prince. One of the chief princes. It's the same word as used with regard to the prince of the kingdom of Persia. Here, Michael is called a prince, one of the princes. And so, there are angelic princes in, that are mentioned in, in the scripture. There's a hierarchy, if you will, amongst the angels. There are those who lead, there are those who follow. There are categories or classifications there's rank amongst the angels. There are powers, principalities, 
there, there are those types of terms that are used with, with regard to the rank that we find amongst the, the angels. Michael is also not only in verse 13 called the prince, look uh, in the same chapter, verse 21, but I will show thee that which is noted in the scripture of truth and that there is none that holdeth with me in these things but Michael your prince, same word, Chapter 12, Daniel 12, 1. And at that time shall Michael stand up, the great prince, which standeth for the children of thy people. So here Michael, an angel, is referred to as a prince. Thus I submit that uh, the prince of Persia is likewise an angelic prince, though an evil angel. Uh, angelic prince. Michael here was called uh, to assist Gabriel in this conflict with this prince of Persia in the spiritual realm, not in the material, physical, but in the spiritual realm to, uh, to assist in overcoming this prince of Persia. Satan himself is called a prince. He's called the prince in Mark 9.35, but the Pharisees said, he casteth, speaking of Jesus, he, Jesus, casteth out devils through the prince of the devils, uh, meaning Satan. And, uh, likewise, in John 14.30, uh, we read, Hereafter, Jesus says, I will not talk much with you, for the prince of this world cometh, meaning Satan. He's called a prince, and hath nothing in me. He's a spiritual a uh, fallen uh, prince of angels, prince of the world. Uh, in other words, uh, whereas this is the prince of Persia, this evil angel in Daniel ten thirteen, uh, the the whole world is uh, amongst the evil angels, the the demons, whatever one would call them. His dominion isn't uh, confined to one particular location in the world. Satan is the prince of all of the demons and his uh, rule amongst, the, amongst the, the wicked fallen angels is the whole world. And in Ephesians 2.2, Paul says, Wherein time past ye walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. So once again, he's referred to as a prince. Uh, we, we, see, we see also that in Revelation chapter 12, verses 7 through 8, that Michael and Satan are involved in this spiritual battle. Uh, and it's, it's portrayed in, in language as if they are warring one against the other in Revelation 12, 7 through 8. But it's a spiritual battle. But even though it's a spiritual battle, let us not think that the effects and the consequences of that spiritual battle are not felt or seen or observed in the world, in the material world. Because they are. Uh, the effect of this spiritual battle uh, between Gabriel and Michael joining Gabriel and warring against this prince of Persia, this fallen angel that was given 
apparently sent to, uh, to dissuade or to work in, in the mind and the heart of King Cyrus was a spiritual battle, but yet it had material earthly consequences. And that is typically the case. It doesn't, the war and the battle doesn't just stay in the spiritual realm. It has earthly consequences. That's why we have to, again, take this very real, very seriously. Behind events that occur on earth, there are spiritual battles between God's angels and Satan's demons. But let us again realize that Jesus has already won the victory. The victory is already his. Colossians 2, verse 15. Jesus, as he died upon the cross, having spoiled, notice, having spoiled, taken from them, spoiled principalities, powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. That is, in his death upon the cross, he triumphed over all of these, these enemies, spiritual enemies. So how are such spiritual battles as we find in Daniel 10.13, how are they fought? Well, let me suggest that they are fought by way of, of powerful influence exercised over people through suggestions and temptations and, at times, in those who disbelieve, who do not receive Jesus Christ, at times by way of possessing even those people. Demonic spirits do, again, are said to take possession of certain uh, individuals. Uh, again, not believers, uh, not those who truly trust in Jesus Christ, but do take possession of them. And again, we find uh, that, and we'll talk more about that next Lord's Day, God willing. But, uh, but uh, that's, that's the realm that's the way in which these battles are, are, are fought, is through the influence that is exercised, the suggestions that are made outwardly uh, from the demons, uh, even to those that they do not possess, uh, uh, the suggestions, the temptations that, that, that are cast before uh, individuals, that's how they war against, again, God and against his righteous angels, his godly angels, that are again uh, countering that influence, countering those temptations, resist, bringing again a resistance against uh, those suggestions and those temptations uh, that are going, not something we hear, not something we see, but that's what is going on uh, by way of the spiritual battle so often. We may again uh, be tempted uh, from within by our own sinful desires. That's what James chapter 1 says, that temptation rises from our own sinful desires. 
But temptation can also come not only from within, but it can also come from without uh, by way, again, of the suggestions, temptations that are set before uh, people by way of these these ungodly and uh, wicked uh, angels, fallen angels. That's the kind of spiritual warfare that is being waged here in Daniel 10.13, I would submit to you. And we'll have more to say about that spiritual battle, God willing, next week. But presently, I only want to establish that there is a real spiritual realm in which these battles occur. That this isn't uh, make-believe. That this is not mythology. That this actually does happen and is happening. Even when it appears that the wicked spirits have won the day uh, because some evil uh, is perpetrated, some wicked act is done, uh, that someone listens to the suggestion of the enemy and does something uh, that uh, uh, is for example, a mass murder or, or falls into some particular sin, listens to the temptation from without uh, by the devil. That does not mean, again, that we ought to interpret that as Satan as being more powerful than God. Absolutely not. You see, God controls Satan and gives him enough rope, as it were, to hang himself. Just as though, uh, just as when uh, God gave to Satan uh, enough rope to hang himself in the case of Job uh, and allowed Satan to bring all manner of misery uh, upon Job. And yet, by the end of the book of Job, uh, we see that Job has not denied the Lord. Job has uh, reaffirmed his faith and his trust in God in spite of all that Satan brought and that God allowed Satan to bring into Job's life. And so, again, we see even though it appeared outwardly to the senses that, that Satan had won the day, No, it was God that was in control. It was God that won in that particular situation. It was was something beyond what Job could see. It was a spiritual conflict. It was a spiritual battle that was going on. And yet God won. And that's, that's what we see again all of the time. That happened with Peter. Peter, uh, Jesus says to Peter, Satan's asked to sift you like wheat. And, and, The Lord gave permission uh, for Satan to sift Peter like wheat in his denial of Jesus Christ three times. And yet, did Satan win the battle? No. Uh, Peter was restored, and Peter strengthened his brethren. Peter was stronger as a result of having failed and fallen in that situation. And especially in the case of Christ. Satan thought he'd won the day when Christ was crucified. And yet it was through the crucifixion, through the resurrection, 
that all the enemies and the powers of darkness were forever defeated by our mediator, by our king and our priest, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so this battle was, again, in Daniel 10, 13, was intended to basically, was a battle between uh, this angelic, fallen angelic being, the prince of Persia, to dissuade, to lead King Cyrus, to show disfavor to the Jews, whereas Michael, whereas Gabriel and Michael went and their influence, through their strength, through their power, they overcame the influence of, of the satanic messenger and, and brought about, uh, through that means, God brought about uh, the favor of Cyrus, continued favor of Cyrus upon God's people to continue to provide for them and through the subsequent kings of Persia to provide for God's people. Verses 14 and 15, again, we'll simply note that uh, before our application, that uh, again, upon receiving this, this uh, vision, upon or uh, receiving this truth, not a vision, but receiving this information from Gabriel the angel, that once again, it was, it, it was such a, uh, a matter in, of revelation to Daniel that he fell upon his face once again shows his weakness, but God's power again uh, to lift him up, as we'll see, occurred once again that the angel beheld him, lifted him up from the ground, and uh, set him upon his feet. So the Lord once again uses angels to sustain Daniel, uses angels to sustain us. So in application, as we close today, just a couple to think on. Delays in our prayers. I think this passage before us has something to, to say to us about possible reasons for delays to our prayers. It's not because God has not heard. It's not because God has not received. It's not because God may not have even acted. He may have even acted. You see, there are so many connections that we don't see between our prayers and the answers to our prayers by way of how they involve so many other people, perhaps, other events that are all connected or tied together in some way we can't even understand that bring about the answers to our prayers. And so again, let us, let us not uh, become discouraged because there are delays to our prayers. Well, let us uh, be those uh, who uh, understand that ultimately God answers all of our prayers either with a yes with a no, or with a wait. We don't understand, we may not know uh, fully at this point why God delays. There was a good reason why there was a delay to Daniel's prayer. 
and his fasting for 21 days. He didn't understand. He didn't know what was going on. We don't know what God is doing in the delays. But we do know and we ought to trust him that he is good. That he loves us. That he is trustworthy. You see, that's ultimately the issue, is it not? Is God worthy of our trust when there are delays in our life to prayers that we have offered in sincerity and faith to him, falling perhaps many times upon our knees and beseeching him? Do we trust him? I dare say there is no being that is trustworthy like our God. He cannot lie. He is all wise. He knows all things. He is almighty. He is all powerful. And so if there is a delay, we can trust him that there's a very good reason for that delay. I can't, I'm not saying it's easy. I'm not saying that it's pleasant. But there is a good reason, and it is for our good. It is for our good that there are those delays. Not for our destruction that there are delays. And then finally, the last application is this. Let us realize that, as I said in the course of the sermon, but let me repeat that, that our battle is not supremely against earthly rulers in high places, in what we see by way of the need of reformation in our country or in the church of Jesus Christ or in our family or even in our own lives. Uh, ultimately, the battle is not against flesh and blood. The battle is against the spiritual rulers, princes in high places. And we need, again, if that is the case, then we need to be fully armed, fully armed spiritually with God's armor. We need to take upon ourselves the whole armor of God that he has given to us to be able to war against, to fight against these these uh, rulers, these spiritual rulers in high places, we need to realize again that ultimately uh, reformation comes uh, by, by the Lord uh, through reformation, through the gospel, through his spirit, through his angelic forces overcoming the forces of evil in the world. It's ultimately a spiritual battle. Let us fight the battle. Let us wage the battle. Let us not forget, though there are evils in the, in the world, materially and physically, let us not forget where the true battle is actually being fought. And let us not forget who will win. Let us not forget that God will prevail. God is sovereign. 
His angelic forces will win the battle, and we through him will be victors and overcomers through Christ who loved us. Please stand with me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we confess that we are so often unable, uh, ignorant of the, of the battles that are going on in the spiritual realm and merely focus upon that which we hear and see. Lord, we are, we are told in thy word to not limit, uh, Lord, the battle to that, but to realize there is an even greater battle going on uh, in uh, this unseen world. And let us, Lord, uh, by thy grace, therefore be ready to fight that battle. Be ready and armed with thy truth and with thy spirit to be filled, uh, Lord, with the fruit of the spirit of God, to be uh, walking in the light of thy truth and in thy righteousness and holiness. Lord, we, we pray, use us as thy people uh, to indeed um, stand for thee against the forces of the enemy. Use us, our Lord, uh, that we would not capitulate, compromise, Lord, uh, uh, before these enemy forces that, give, that make suggestions unto us in our minds, that set temptations before us, who cannot control us because greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world, but who nevertheless cast these temptations before us. Lord, we pray that we would fight the good fight of faith, uh, trusting in Jesus who has already won the victory for us. We ask, Lord, hear us in Jesus' name. Amen.